Okay, so I'm got it. Ready right, to go. go. Okay. Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim Rochelle. Today's episode 260, and we're going to be interviewing Matt. How are you doing today, Matt? Not bad, thank you. Morning, all. So, yeah, you're up there in Maine. How's, uh, how's the weather up in Maine today? It's actually uh, it's pretty nice today, but I gather we've got about uh, two weeks of rain coming. Um, I was I was actually just in Houston for two months. I got back a week ago, so it's very nice to get up here from that weather. Yeah, it's hot down there. What were you doing in Houston? Uh, so my my construction business is based down there. I I have to go down there um, every couple of months, um, and because it's getting it's all getting set up at the moment, so I have to spend a lot of time. I, I spend the least amount of time there possible, but uh, but yeah, every couple of months I have to go down for a few weeks. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's get the party started here, and let's talk about your past. Um. So first question I ask everyone: Tell me about your childhood and growing up. Um, so yeah, I had a little bit of a, a think about this since you told me we would be discussing it. Um, I, I uh, my my parents got divorced when I was uh, five years old, so I imagine that uh, I say I imagine I had plenty of therapy to suggest that that's had quite a lot to do with things over the years. Um, my mum is French, so uh, she she took my brother and I over to France. Um, when I was uh, about seven after the divorce. Um, and then my brother and I were going sort of back and forth between the UK um, until, uh, and then I was in boarding school until I was 16. Then I went to live in Paris again from 16 uh, through to 18. Um, and I did my, my A-levels in France. Um, I'm not sure what the US equivalent is for that. Um, and then I came back to the UK and then I was in the military for three years. Um, yeah, the military. I was in the Royal Signals, which is all telecommunications. Um, I think I, I did that. Uh, I was actually um, a little it was more lack of options going into the in the military at that time of my life. I was very young and. I mean, it's certainly not a decision I would make now. I don't, I don't regret it at all. I'm very proud of it. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it was, it was, uh, it was more a result of um, of me being lost uh, for so long, uh, which I guess we'll get into more detail as the as the the interview progresses. So, what was it like growing up in a divorced household? I mean, I kind of know because my parents were divorced when I was eight. But how did it affect you? So, I mean, what I can what I can remember is being very defensive. We stayed with our mother um, and I can remember that it was very difficult for her. She didn't have a lot of money. And um, I can remember even as a, a you know very young man, only, yes, uh, five or six years old, being very defensive of my mother and, uh, you know, wanting to try and help. Um, and obviously being unable to because, you, you know, I was only only a young kid. Um, and I, I, I honestly don't remember um, a huge amount from a lot of my childhood, which, again, through going through therapy, apparently is quite common. Um, 
and because you know there's probably a lot of things that I wanted to forget but uh, I remember it being a very it, it was an unhappy time um, my mum was upset for a long time and then she she her sister passed away uh, from cancer as I say my mum was French obviously so was her sister they both moved over to the UK and married English guys and her elder sister died of cancer around about that time as well so my mum I think my mum um that she died in what 87 so about two years after the divorce i think my mother said that's it i've i've had enough of the uk and uh took my brother and i um back to france with her and um oh, that's right so we were we were in france for about a year and um we i think we were both very unhappy and my mum got some child psychologists involved and they basically said to her your kids have got to go back to uh got to go back to the UK they they miss the UK they they're not happy here um so I think against uh against my mother's better judgment certainly her instincts um she decided to send us back uh, to, to the UK uh, where my father was and he put us into boarding school um, which I think in retrospect was not a fantastic move. I mean, my little brother uh, is two years younger than me. He was only seven um, to go into boarding school. And then... Uh, what yeah, was boarding yeah, school like? Oh, it's fucking horrible, mate. <laughs> 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 it, was, uh, it was a real jungle. As I was talking to a friend about that the other day, I... I don't miss school at all. I can remember when I was being, when I was at school, I can remember a lot of my dad's friends and stuff saying, you know, you'll, you'll, you should enjoy it. They're the best days of your life. I absolutely hated it. I wouldn't wish boarding school on my worst enemy. It was a real jungle. Um, but then again, having said that, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, so yeah, I, I think it was pretty tough, but no, no more than, you know, for everybody else. Um, I, I think that a lot of my problems in my life have arisen from the fact that I was probably a slightly oversensitive kid. Um, and the things that I, I went through effect tended to, to affect me perhaps more than they should have done. What kind of thing were you sensitive to? Um, I mean, I do, I can remember being, uh, really unhappy at boarding school. I didn't want to be at boarding school. I wanted to be at home with my, with my folks um but uh i think it could because it started so early i was what nine or ten when i first went to boarding school i guess i probably put it in my head that you know this this is it this is the way the world is so you just put your head down and you deal with it but for six years i really didn't uh i really didn't enjoy it uh, my uh i think my, my my i was a weekly boarder for for quite a few years so i would go home on the weekends and i hated going back so much my dad did in in the end he didn't like to take me it was about a 45 minute drive from my dad's house back to boarding school he would actually get a cab driver to come and pick me up uh and take me back every weekend because i just uh, i just didn't like it so i guess maybe maybe there was some trauma from that i don't know but i i it wasn't too bad mate you know nobody fucking died yeah <laughs> That's a good, that's always a plus. Yeah. <laughs> Were they rough with you guys? Did they hit you and stuff? Yeah, man, normal stuff. Not not so much um the te there was still um physical punishment when I was a young man. I'm I'm 44 now. Um so in, there there was some we used to get the back of our hands would be slapped with rulers, but it was more what the bigger the bigger boys would 
would kick the, the shit out of you when you got there. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, you get older and then end up doing the same yourself. So I'm, I'm guessing pretty, pretty standard stuff, um, you know, and, and, and of course some great times as well. But I, I think, I think for me personally, and, and for my brother, I don't think it was the right the right move in retrospect. I think we would have been better off staying at home. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. Mm. I, in, in retrospect, again, talking with with my family, um, they do they do regret that. But my, my father went to boarding school. His father went to boarding school, you know. Um, so, yeah. Uh, I think it also because I've been in an institution so long because that's what boarding school is, that's what prison is, that's what the army is. They're institutions. Um, I think it made it easier for me to actually go into the military. A period of my life that, as difficult as it was, um, and I never went operational. By the way, I want to make that clear. Um, I never actually went in, into into operational theatre. Uh, but it was it was still difficult. But I think I've I've been prepped by the fact I've been in boarding school for so long to be able to go in and do that. Now, when I finally decided to leave uh, the military, when I was what twenty two, and I went over to Australia, that's when all you know I was getting into adulthood, and I guess that's where all the real problems uh, sort of began as a result of having been in institutions pretty much for what ten years. Wanted to let my hair down, I guess, <laughs> and <Yeah>. I really have. <laughs> so, <clears throat> what did you do once you graduated boarding school? So when I uh, I finished up my A levels in France, I was at an international school in France, and I came back because my mother moved over to the United States at that time right when I finished, I decided to move back to the UK from France. And I spent sort of like a year doing nothing, bumming around, uh, which my dad just would not have, obviously. Um, and then I joined the military uh, after about a year of being in the UK. And as I say, I was in the military for, for yeah, just two and a half, three years. And what did you do that? What did you do that the military? Okay, so after the military, uh, it all really began. I, I, my uh, stepfather had a big job with um, in oil and gas, and that's why they'd been sent out to Australia. I wanted to come out. I wanted to go out and visit them. So as soon as I left the military, in I remember this because it was just for it was just before nine eleven that I f I went out there, and I fell in love with it. Um, and, uh, for a year I stayed with my folks whilst they were out there and then they left and I stayed, um, I, I stayed with a girlfriend there and I managed to get a pretty good job and, um, it with a, actually with a, a floor, an English flooring company, they sent me over. I was in Perth for three years. Uh, the company then sent me over to Brisbane, uh, to Queensland, um, for, uh, it was kind of a promotion uh, to put me on the road as a, as a salesman. And I, I think I, I, I really enjoyed it. But after two years of being there, I got very homesick and I left. I dropped everything um, and went back to the UK. Uh, so, I was yeah, I went back to the UK in 2006. So I've been out there for five years. And... Um, I, when I was back in the UK, I landed a pretty decent job 
and um, I moved in where I had a, a girlfriend I moved in with there and I was in the UK back until 2010. In 2010, uh, we broke up and I decided to come over and visit my mum who'd been living over. And in fact, both my brothers and sister were over in the US as well. So I, I went over for a visit and um, within a couple of months, um, I decided I loved it and I stayed there and I ended up getting a job through Conoco Phillips as a logistics manager. And believe it or not, um, the job was uh, based in Queensland again on the APLNG pipeline project. Um, so yeah, 2011 through to 2014, I was back out there again. Um, that was a pretty interesting uh, time in my life uh, because it was it was a great gig to have and and uh, you know being in Australia again and I was on a rotation 28 days on nine days off so I was flying back to the US with lots and lots of money on my days off um, and when that finished up in 2014 or 15 I came back with my Australian fiance uh, we came back to the US uh, it's pretty difficult times because I was trying to get my green card through family um and that actually got mistakenly rejected in 2015 so and at the same time I lost my job because of that and my Australian fiance left me it's a pretty shitty year <laughs> and uh, she went back to Australia um and then uh, I stayed in Houston and you know I've been I've been in Houston ever since I ended up going to treatment and that was the worst sort of seven years I got into drugs very very badly I had a good job with um, French oil and gas company uh, in, in Houston so I you know I was I was relatively wealthy but um, you know I just I wasted it all on drugs and girls and fast cars um, when, then, did the, when did the heavy drug use start? I I've, I was interested in drugs from a very young age. My dad, I can, one of the first things I remember my dad saying to me when I was a young man was, uh, you've got a pretty unhealthy, um, a, a pretty unhealthy interest in, in, uh, in drugs. And um, I, I'm guessing, and well, I say guessing, obviously I've been through a lot of therapy to, to to arrive at, at the conclusion that I just uh the 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 one the one thing that always made things better or softer for me were, were drugs or, or alcohol so um that heavy drinking was a problem all through my younger times I smoked a lot of marijuana until I was about 27 or, or 28 so the drinking wasn't so bad, I guess. I stopped when I was 27 or 28 because I started getting like memory blocks. Um, but I, instead of smoking pot, I'd drink three bottles of red wine every night. Um, and But it was, it was relatively sustainable. I was a young man. I certainly wasn't operating at, at um, my top levels because I was drinking too much at night times. So I was a problem drinker, not, not an alcoholic. Um, and at that time in the UK, we're going at the moment in sort of like between 2006 and 2010, before I came to the US, I was dabbling in cocaine and things like that. And then I developed um, a very, I developed an addiction to codeine because you could buy, that's right, you could buy codeine over the counter in the UK. It was, it was called like Panadine Forte, I think. And it, or it, I found a way to extract the codeine from the pills 
um, and take out the ibuprofen. So How did you do that? Um, it's a pretty disgusting process whereby, again, memory serves, because we're going back 14, 15 years. You would, you would separate it by crushing it up, putting it in some water with something else I can't remember. And then, of course, codeine fully dissolves in water. So then I would strain the liquid through a sock and then you would neck the liquid very fast, which tasted absolutely foul. Um, but I did it because I was addicted to it. Um, that went on for about seven or eight months. Then when I broke up with my girlfriend at the time and I came over to the US, I, I had to go cold turkey. And I'll never forget, that was really, really bad. For a month, I was very, very sick. I lost 30% body weight um, and uh, vowed that I would never do it again. Famous last words. But then, of course, as I said before, I managed to, uh, through, through some friends, I landed a really good job in Australia where you constantly got drug tested, etc. And I, 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 because we were on site where you would we had an alcohol breath test every morning at 5 a.m. That's what Australia is like. It kind of kept me out of trouble, I guess, the three years that I was on that project and over there. It kept my nose relatively clean. Having said that, whenever I came back to the US um, on my days off, as I said, it was 28 on, nine off. Um, it would be, you know, I'd have 20 grand to blow on drugs and girls. So by the time I got back to Australia uh, for the next 28 days, I remember I had a, a friend of mine from the company. He could just tell by looking at me saying, you know, what the hell have you just done to yourself? Um, but I had the 28 days on there to get fit and well, and I wasn't drinking and I wasn't doing anything. So relatively healthy. So in answer to your question, it got really bad after my Australian fiance left me in August of 2015. I'd lost my job. I'd been um, incorrectly rejected my green card. It was all resolved a few months later, but that didn't help me at the time. From that period, when after... She left in, in July 2015, up until, what, 18 months ago when I went to rehab, was the worst period of my life. And I was addicted to GHB. I was constantly, like, a, a quiet night in for me during the week would be three bottles of red wine and a Xanax because I'd taken so much Adderall during the day which I was getting prescription from a doctor who was also giving me Ambien, Xanax, and in fact, she was giving me 100 milligrams of Vyvanse at the time. Um, and, you know, I guess it's not really her fault. She didn't realize what she was dealing with. Um, and that 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 went on um, for a while. And as I said, I, I also during that time, I was I was introduced to GHB and got heavily addicted to that. And that was the first time where I had to go to hospital because of my uh, drug uh, problems um and i saw so that that would have been in 2019 as a result of that uh, i was in hospital for like eight days my brother had to fly back from africa because my family weren't in houston at the time and they wouldn't release me the hospital wouldn't release me as a family member um so i sort of i guess i i tried that's right i tried to go into rehab myself because i had a good job with an oil and gas company as a, a contracts manager. And um, so I, I put myself into a clinic um, to try and get off GHB and I couldn't even spend one night there. Um, I said to the doctor, uh, I've got to, I've got to go. Can you just give me the same medication and I'll do this at home on my own? 
And he said, I really don't advise it, obviously, but we cannot keep you here by law. If you really want to go, come and see me in the morning and I'll give you all the drugs that you need. He gave me all the drugs that uh, I, I needed. And um, after about a week, yeah, I was picked up wandering around in my underwear in our parking lot at 3 a.m. And I, the police could tell that I wasn't criminal, just that I was very intoxicated. So they then took me to hospital. Um, and you would have thought that would have been enough, you know, for me. But I hadn't, I, I don't think I was ready. For some reason, I wasn't ready to go and get treatment and I did some outpatient treatment which helped a little bit but it, it wasn't enough I had to really reach rock bottom um, and that was uh, in October just before my birthday in 2021 we I'd started a construction company about eight months before that which had done so well with my business partner we were making tons of money but I was just spending it on um, Vicodin hydrocodone oxycodone and freebasing a lot um and i also was dabbling back in ghb um i crashed my mercedes um on the freeway because i passed out i'd taken too much ghb in october 2021 and that was the moment for me because i should have been dead there's multiple times in my life where a lot of people say this they don't know what it really means i really should have been dead and because uh, a couple of times I had I had a Camaro ZL1 in, in Houston and twice I wrapped it around um, a fucking light post at three o'clock in the morning. So drunk, I couldn't even remember both times I got up in the morning and I didn't know why my car wasn't in the wasn't in the parking lot. That's how drunk I've been. So I I I, that, I, I told my parents uh, and my poor mum, who'd seen me many times over the years in in states that no mother should have to see her son. Um, that that point really was a wake up call for me. And the long and short of it was that I lost my business. I just I, I needed to get away from everything. Um, and my family really wanted me to go in for treatment. So I did. And it took. And it's been a tough 18 months. Um but I found I'm finding ways to sustain it. Um, and I think age has a lot to do with it as well. Um, I don't know what your next question was going to be, but I'm just talking now. No, um, no. I, 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 was, I think, yeah. My question was, what do you think made it stick this time? I, yeah, I, I think age has a lot to do with it. I'm, I'm, I'm tired. Um, I just, you know, again, I went, I went, back to Houston for work and so all of the temptation was there and of course I had to face all of my old demons because I've been away for a year I, I just as I said I, I, I left after rehab I, I I just spent a lot of time with family I've got family in France so I went over there for a few months and and I just we've, I've got family up in Maine and I it, it was exactly what I needed to just be away from everything um, and it's worked that's that's so what's made it stick was a combination of things. I I say age first. I'm not sure that's the most important factor. I, I don't know, but I came so close to the edge. I realized how much um, I'd hurt everyone. And I, I mean, it's a weird one because when I was in rehab, I guess I was finally ready for it. I should have gone to rehab 15 years before I did, but it would never. And I get, as I said, three or four years before that, I was within an outpatient program, which just didn't really take because I wasn't ready. 
So I guess I was ready. I and mean, there were a lot of people who came out of it. And I was amazed to see that they were drinking the day after they got out. So, so it kind of made me, it took away the credibility of the whole thing at the time, but it hasn't because it stuck with me. And I don't know why it stuck with me when the seven or eight people I was really good friends with during rehab, because it's, you know, it's somewhere where you, you finally go and, and, you know, you, you share everything. So you get close with people, all of them with, within a few days of, of finishing were back doing what they had been in rehab for. So I didn't really get it. I didn't stay in touch with any of them and I didn't go to any meetings um, because I wanted to stay on this path. And I mean, again, in answers to your question, I think the secret for me has been to, to be happy alone again. I have never, ever been happy in my adult life on my own. I've always needed to be around people a clown making people laugh loved by girls always in relationships the wrong relationships being codependent and so after um after the rehab and after not you know drinking and taking lots of drugs and my brain was beginning to learn how to do that because i've been drinking for 20 25 years and taking lots of drugs for years um i finally you know, began reading books again and just enjoying peace and quiet. And, and that's, I, I think that's, that's been the main factor in, in possibly sustaining um, sobriety for the rest of my life. Cause the next time I fall back into what I was doing, I'm, it's all over for me. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, Again, I'm quite happy because I just went back to Houston where it would have been very easy for me to, to order up lots of coke, you know, free basin, doing all that. I didn't want to do any of it. I actively stayed away from all of it. It's very difficult because I have good friends I've known for 10 years there who I had to completely cut off. And of course, I was bumping into a lot of people who I'd enjoyed their company when not sober. But once you're sober, believe me, 90% of the people you were hanging around with just become boring to you. Um, or they did to me. Um, so it's lonely, it's tough, but it's not so lonely when you start to learn to like yourself again and you get a little bit of peace and quiet and you, and you start to covet being alone. You start to you start to covet, and not in an unhealthy way, not being a recluse. I'm still sociable and I, and I like to, you know, I like to meet new people. I like to talk to people, um, but to learn... And I don't know if this is a generic thing that's going to help anyone else, but for, for me, I can only speak for me. Um, learning learning to be on my own has been, again, I think the most the, the, the thing that's going to help me sustain this for good. Um, I mean, I, I was given medication, obviously all non-narcotic medication in, in rehab, which I've continued to take. One is a blood pressure medication um, because I was suffering from severe hypertension in fact not verbatim but I think one of the nurses when I first got to rehab was like you know you 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 were you were you've been on the verge of of having major major heart attacks embolisms because I was running in at sitting there at something like 230 over 150 on my blood pressure um that's crazy yeah so um but GHB which I've just been doing a lot of tends to do that when I, I the first time I passed out on a main road on West Timer in Houston uh, midday on a Saturday driving back from watching footy obviously I'm a big footy fan I'm English um, 
the, the I, I woke up at my steering wheel and there were police, um, fire engines and ambulances everywhere. And uh, the police officer, once I came to, was like, are you okay? All right, come out of the car, stand up. And I went in, the the ambulance guys, who I've always found incredible, the fire people and the ambulance guys in Houston have always been amazing. They took me into the ambulance and they said, look, mate, um, you've got to tell us we've run tests and we cannot find anything in your blood, yet your blood pressure is is dangerously high. We can't release you. Um, and, of course, I didn't tell them I had a bottle of GHB in my pocket because <laughs> I got away with it. Um, and it actually happened that when you take a little bit too much GHB, you pass out or die. It's a very dangerous drug. Um, and, yeah, it, it, it happened again a couple of weeks later. Um, sorry, I can't forget where I was going with that. What was the, what was the question? No, you were talking about your GHB and how it happened a few weeks later. Yeah, it, it's um, it, it's uh, I I I can't explain why for what what it took. I, I guess yeah, the original part. What what it took for me to get to that stage, I, I, it was age, and uh, I'd had yeah, I I'd, I'd had enough. Uh, I'll never forget it because it was just it was the day before my birthday uh, that I crashed my Mercedes because I'd passed out because I'd taken a little bit too much GHB, October 21. And, um, I mean, I didn't even know right at that moment that that was it. But um, I was in the next few days, I was in such a dark place. I didn't talk to anyone. I, I didn't go anywhere. And, you know, I finally, my, my family, you know, they, they got involved. My business partner had got them involved, which ultimately was a good move. And, and yeah, it ended up... Uh, Four or five weeks later, I um I went into rehab and 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 here we are, um and I I think the main thing I've taken from the last eighteen months that I would say to other people is to learn, to 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 learn to like yourself again. You've got to learn to be okay alone. You don't need approval from other people. You don't need to conform. You don't need to be around other people, and you don't need these things in your head to to sort of make you feel different you can uh, i've i've learned to be happy sober in my head on my own and that's what i know again that's what i know makes it sustainable um but i, I don't know if that's relevant to others or just me no that's definitely relevant to others absolutely um and it's it, 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 going through rehab was was fucking heartbreaking um just to, to see because there's always people that have it worse than you um i'm not typically someone that sits around feeling sorry for myself but um it was it was a very humbling yeah that's another thing is humility to learn humility i was a i was a cocky um horrible little twat for so many years um and i, I guess you know yeah after that i felt i wanted things i wanted real things i wanted uh, all all of my relationships had been fake um, with friends, with girlfriends, even with my family. It had all been manufactured. I, I was a huge manipulator. Um, and I didn't want all of these things. Almost immediately after rehab, I found repulsive and I didn't want them anymore. I wanted to try and not be, I mean, I don't want to say even a better person. I just wanted to try and be and, and have a bit of normality in my life. And I was tired of it, you know, it had been... 10 nearly 10 years of very very living right up 
close to the edge. And yeah, I, I didn't want it anymore. And now, now it's only been 18 months. It's repulsive to me. As I said, I just went to Houston where it could have been all handed to me on a plate and I wasn't interested in the slightest. So it's doable. <laughs> that it is. It is doable. <clears throat> it's it's going to, you got to, for some reason, most of us have to hit rock bottom. Yeah. Yeah. There's really do. no story I hear where someone, something doesn't happen traumatic or, some kind of event in your life that changes everything. It, I, I, so a, a very good friend of mine who I saw down in Houston from, from back home from the UK is a, is a major sex addict. And, um, and he's a really bright, very kind guy, um, you know, and he's got a wonderful partner, but of course he, he cheats on her. And it, it was, it was, um, I, it kind of, my my therapy sort of kicked in a little bit with him to try and help him through it. Um, but he's actually, because of, of, of what I was explaining, what I'd just been through, he's actually seeking treatment himself now, because as you probably know, sex addiction is, is at the center of obsession. It's at the center of all addiction um, or a big, a big part of it. Um, you know, drugs, drugs come with that, but just to watch how, um, because people are still very ignorant about addiction. They're, they're told that it is an illness, but they don't realize what, what kind of an illness it is. When you say illness, it means that you're doing something that you're not really making a conscious balanced decision to do. You're destroying yourself and you don't know why you're doing it. It's a very nasty place to be. And, and I just I just saw that firsthand with him. This is a 40-year-old guy who would love to have children with his partner. But, he, you know, the second he gets away, he's, he's, he's trying to have sex with other women. It's just it's, it's an addiction, you know, and he's and, and doing drugs and things like that. It's all tied in. It's, yeah, it's a very dark, complicated place. And I, I don't think I'll ever truly figure it out. But it doesn't matter to me because, touch wood, I've, I've got through the worst of it and I'm finding ways to sustain it. Um, if I'm being completely honest, I do take an, an anti-craving medication, um, which I know is 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 mildly um, uh, um, drug related, uh, but it is sustainable. It's controlled with a doctor, and it does stop me want because the the biggest problems in my life have always been painkillers, always been opioids. Um, and alcohol and I don't really have now I don't really have that issue so I take a melatonin um, before bed um, sometimes I take a little bit of a CBD cigarette but I wake up because because sleep is very closely tied into addiction especially through my childhood I could never sleep and of course if you drink three bottles of red wine you're going to sleep or you're going to think you're going to sleep very very well so um, a lot of it was always tied into sleeping badly. And now I've found ways to, I exercise every day. Um, I make sure that, you know, come 9 p.m. I'm tired and I, I want to go to bed and, 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 and sleep. And, you know, again, after 40, everything's fucking tiring. So, yes. so, um, so, so that, so that helps. Um, and, and I've, and now I, yeah, I really have a, I really want a, a healthy, a balanced life and who knows, I might even meet a nice girl and be able to finally settle down. Um, but that's another, that's a story unto itself, because as I've been saying, I've become so happy at being alone. Um, I'd be hugely reluctant to let anybody in to that, that might jeopardize the path I'm on now.
Yeah, I feel the same way about that. Just very, right. very weary. Mm-hmm. Mm. Some people are generally um, uh, so enamored with money and material things, uh, as I was for so long. Um, and I, I know that I could ring out cliche after cliche here, you know, about the best things in life being free and things like that, but they absolutely are. Um, and once you learn to enjoy the simple things again, you know, like getting out into the country and go walking or see, look at animals, if that's your thing, you know, go traveling, whatever it is that doesn't involve toxicity, putting toxicity into your body, find it and do it, you know, and it doesn't have to be a life-changing hobby. Again, it can just be the simplest things. When I first came up to Maine just after rehab and I was able to do things that I hadn't done for 10 years, like walk quietly in the woods or up in the hills, it, it sort of, it really changed things a lot. Um, and then you, you start to become more in tune with your healthy self and and and, uh, and then it becomes habit. And I hope. <laughs> If I'm making too much sense, I'm trying to be as honest as possible. No, it makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. It's good. I'm glad to hear you're doing so well. You know, you're keeping yeah. your life together, making sure you're doing what you need to do to stay sober. Yeah, I, I, I do. I feel quite lucky because I've had a great family behind me and I did have the opportunity to get away, which if I was talking to anybody who was in my situation, and I know thousands of people are, that it's to get away. You need to drop your work. You need to drop. You need to drop the person that you're with because whoever you're with and is allowing you to behave like that is an enabler, whether you like it or not. You need to drop everything and you need to get away. You need to get away. You need to go somewhere where there is nothing and nobody. You need to go out deep into the country. That's what worked for me. You need to change everything and you need to do it for a few months for it to take. Then that that would be my advice. That's what's worked for me. You need to get away and drop everything. You need to lose everything and then rebuild it. Very difficult thing to do, to let go. Yeah, that is not an easy task. It isn't. That's the biggest thing I saw with relapses back in Houston is, is how can you expect to go and get treatment and maintain that treatment when you go straight back into the lifestyle, the same friends, the same places, you're exposed to all the same things. How are you ever going to stand a chance? You don't. You, you have you have to plan, and and I it was whilst I was in rehab, my family's so wonderful. They'd already planned it for me. My my ticket was bought for me to go and spend three months in 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 Europe with my family before I even finished. I had no choice, but I felt very much I owed my family so much because I I don't have too many regrets to be honest with you. I've had the time of my life. I really have. I've had a great time with some great memories. Uh, but the one thing that that is awful is what I did to my family that I do regret and that I try very, very hard to uh, fix every day because nobody deserves to see somebody that they love go through that shit and do that shit to themselves, you know? Yeah. No one does. Um, yeah. We well, got quite <laughs> the story. Yeah, yeah. I, I hope I didn't talk too much. And I, and as I say, I I don't think I'm a special case or anything like that. Um, I I I do this if it can help one person. Wonderful. All right, my friend. So seems like we're wrapping up here. Did you have anything else that you wanted to add in there? 
No, not not really, mate. I've I've told you everything that I've, that's happened. Just uh, you know, anyone that listens, stay strong, keep going, and and learn to le- learn to love yourself again on your own. Get 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 some peace and quiet. It's the most important thing of all. Yeah. All right, my friend. Do me a favor. Sit tight for just a minute, and we do our our little ending here. So for everybody that's watching and listening, I hope you like what you saw and heard today. If you did, go below, give us a like, and also subscribe to see when we upload new videos. Addicts Anonymous is on all social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, TikTok, Instagram. You name it, we're on it. Um, I also suggest checking out our website, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. There's plenty of free resources as well as free literature. Also, Addicts Anonymous has a book out. It's called Addicts Anonymous, Our Stories. It's a collection of people's personal stories, as well as I wrote on a number of different topics and a number of different drugs. So it's got a good compilation of information in there. That's available on Amazon and Kindle. And once again, it's called Addicts Anonymous, Our Stories. So that's all we have for today. I really hope you guys enjoyed it. And uh, we'll catch you next time.